Section 1 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Theodolf. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1E, Section 1, Chapter 50, Part 1. Chapter 50. Charles I, 1625. No sooner had Charles taken into his hands the reins of government than he showed an impatience to assemble the great council of the nation, and he would gladly, for the sake of dispatch, have called together the same parliament which had sitten under his father, and which lay at that time under prorogation. But, being told that this measure would appear unusual, he issued writs for summoning a new parliament on the 7th of May, and it was not without regret that the arrival of the princess Henrietta, whom he had espoused by proxy, obliged him to delay, by repeated prorogations, their meeting till the 18th of June, when they assembled at Westminster for the dispatch of business. The young prince, unexperienced and impolitic, regarded as sincere all the praises and caresses with which he had been loaded while active in procuring the rupture with the House of Austria, and besides that he labored under great necessities, he hastened with alacrity to a period when he might receive the most undoubted testimony of the dutiful attachment of his subjects. His discourse to the Parliament was full of simplicity and cordiality. He lightly mentioned the occasion which he had for supply. He employed no intrigue to influence the suffrages of the members. He would not even allow the officers of the Crown, who had seats in the House, to mention any particular sum which might be expected by him. Secure of the affections of the Commons, he was resolved that their bounty should be entirely their own deed, unasked, unsolicited, the genuine fruit of sincere confidence and regard. The House of Commons accordingly took into consideration the business of supply. They knew that all the money granted by the last Parliament had been expended on naval and military armaments, and that great anticipations were likewise made on the revenues of the Crown. They were not ignorant that Charles was loaded with a large debt contracted by his father, who had borrowed money both from his own subjects and from foreign princes. They had learned by experience that the public revenue could with difficulty maintain the dignity of the crown even under the ordinary charges of government. They were sensible that the present war was very lately the result of their own importunate applications and entreaties, and that they had solemnly engaged to support their sovereign in the management of it. They were acquainted with the difficulty of military enterprises directed against the whole house of Austria, against the king of Spain, possessed of the greatest riches and most extensive dominions of any prince in Europe, against the emperor Ferdinand, hitherto the most fortunate monarch of his age, who had subdued and astonished Germany by the rapidity of his victories. Deep impressions they saw must be made by the English sword and a vigorous offensive war be waged against these mighty potentates ere they would resign a principality which they had now fully subdued and which they held in secure possession 
by its being surrounded with all their other territories. To answer, therefore, all these great and important ends, to satisfy their young king in the first request which he made them, to prove their sense of the many royal virtues, particularly economy, with which Charles was endued, the House of Commons, conducted by the wisest and ablest senators that had ever flourished in England, thought proper to confer on the king a supply of two subsidies, amounting to £112,000. This measure, which discovers rather a cruel mockery of Charles than any serious design of supporting him, appears so extraordinary, when considered in all its circumstances, that it naturally summons up our attention, and raises an inquiry concerning the causes of a conduct unprecedented in an English Parliament. So numerous an assembly, composed of persons of various dispositions, was not, it is probable, wholly influenced by the same motives, and few declared openly their true reason. We shall therefore approach nearer to the truth if we mention all the views which the present conjuncture could suggest to them. It is not to be doubted but spleen and ill-will against the Duke of Buckingham had an influence with many. So vast and rapid a fortune, so little merited, could not fail to excite public envy, and however men's hatred might have been suspended for a moment, while the Duke's conduct seemed to gratify their passions and their prejudices, it was impossible for him long to preserve the affections of the people. His influence over the modesty of Charles exceeded even that which he had acquired over the weakness of James, nor was any public measure conducted but by his counsel and direction. His vehement temper prompted him to raise suddenly to the highest elevation his flatterers and dependents, and upon the least occasion of displeasure he threw them down with equal impetuosity and violence. Implacable in his hatred, fickle in his friendships, all men were either regarded as his enemies or dreaded soon to become such. The whole power of the kingdom was grasped by his insatiable hand, while he both engrossed the entire confidence of his master and held invested in his single person the most considerable offices of the crown. However the ill-humor of the commons might have been increased by these considerations, we are not to suppose them the sole motives. The last Parliament of James, amidst all their joy and festivity, had given him a supply very disproportioned to his demand and to the occasion, and as every House of Commons which was elected during forty years succeeded to all the passions and principles of their predecessors, we ought rather to account for this obstinacy from the general situation of the kingdom during that whole period than from any circumstances which attended this particular conjuncture. The nation was very little accustomed at that time to the burden of taxes, and had never opened their purses in any degree for supporting their sovereign. Even Elizabeth, notwithstanding her vigor and frugality, and the necessary wars in which she was engaged, had reason to complain of the commons in this particular, nor could the authority of that princess, which was otherwise almost absolute, ever extort from them the requisite supplies. Habits more than reason we find in everything to be the governing principle of mankind. In this view, likewise, the sinking of the value of subsidies must be considered as a loss to the king. The parliament, swayed by custom, would not augment their number in the same proportion. 
the puritanical party though disguised had a great authority over the kingdom and many of the leaders among the commons had secretly embraced the rigid tenets of that sect all these were disgusted with the court both by the prevalence of the principles of civil liberty essential to their party and on account of the restraint under which they were held by the established hierarchy in order to fortify himself against the resentment of james buckingham had affected popularity and entered into the cabals of the puritans but being secure of the confidence of charles he had since abandoned this party and on that account was the more exposed to their hatred and resentment though the religious schemes of many of the puritans when explained appear pretty frivolous we are not thence to imagine that they were pursued by none but persons of weak understandings some men of the greatest parts and most extensive knowledge that the nation at this time produced could not enjoy any peace of mind because obliged to hear prayers offered up to the divinity by a priest covered with a white linen vestment the match with france and the articles in favor of catholics which were suspected to be in the treaty were likewise causes of disgust to this whole party though it must be remarked that the connections with that crown were much less obnoxious to the protestants and less agreeable to the catholics than the alliance formerly projected with spain and were therefore received rather with pleasure than dissatisfaction to all these causes we must add yet another of considerable moment the house of commons we may observe was almost entirely governed by a set of men of the most uncommon capacity and the largest views men who were now formed into a regular party and united as well by fixed aims and projects as by the hardships which some of them had undergone in prosecution of them among these we may mention the names of sir edward coke sir edwin sands sir robert phillips sir francis seymour sir dudley diggs sir john elliot sir thomas wentworth mr selden and mr pym animated with a warm regard to liberty these generous patriots saw with regret an unbounded power exercised by the crown and were resolved to seize the opportunity which the king's necessities afforded them of reducing the prerogative within more reasonable compass though their ancestors had blindly given way to practices and precedents favorable to kingly power and had been able notwithstanding to preserve some small remains of liberty it would be impossible they thought when all these pretensions were methodized and prosecuted by the increasing knowledge of the age to maintain any shadow of popular government in opposition to such unlimited authority in the sovereign it was necessary to fix a choice either to abandon entirely the privileges of the people or to secure them by firmer and more precise barriers than the constitution had hitherto provided for them in this dilemma men of such aspiring geniuses and such independent fortunes could not long deliberate they boldly embraced the side of freedom and resolved to grant no supplies to their necessitous prince without extorting concessions in favor of civil liberty the end they esteemed beneficent and noble the means regular and constitutional to grant or refuse supplies was the undoubted privilege of the commons and as all human governments particularly those of a mixed frame are in continual fluctuation it was as natural in their opinion and allowable for popular assemblies to take advantage of favorable incidents in order to secure the subject 
as for monarchs, in order to extend their own authority. With pleasure they beheld the king involved in a foreign war, which rendered him every day more dependent on the parliament, while at the same time the situation of the kingdom, even without any military preparations, gave a sufficient security against all invasion from foreigners. Perhaps, too, it had partly proceeded from expectations of this nature that the popular leaders had been so urgent for a rupture with Spain, nor is it credible that religious zeal could be so far have blinded all of them as to make them discover in such a measure any appearance of necessity or any hopes of success. But, however natural all these sentiments might appear to the country party, it is not to be imagined that Charles would entertain the same ideas. Strongly prejudiced in favor of the Duke, whom he had heard so highly extolled in Parliament, he could not conjecture the cause of so sudden an alteration in their opinions. And when the war, which they themselves had so earnestly solicited, was at last commenced, the immediate desertion of their sovereign could not but seem very unaccountable. Even though no further motive had been suspected, the refusal of supply in such circumstances would naturally to him appear cruel and deceitful. But, when he perceived that this measure proceeded from an intention of encroaching on his authority, he failed not to regard these aims as highly criminal and traitorous. Those lofty ideas of monarchical power, which were very commonly adopted during that age, and to which the ambiguous nature of the English constitution gave so plausible an appearance, were firmly riveted in Charles. And however moderate his temper, the natural and unavoidable prepossessions of self-love, joined to the late uniform precedents in favor of prerogative, had made him regard his political tenets as certain and uncontroverted. Taught to consider even the ancient laws and constitution more as lines to direct his conduct than barriers to withstand his power, a conspiracy to erect new ramparts in order to straighten his authority appeared but one degree removed from open sedition and rebellion. So atrocious in his eyes was such a design, that he seems even unwilling to impute it to the commons, and though he was constrained to adjourn the parliament by reason of the plague, which at that time raged in London, he immediately reassembled them at Oxford, and made a new attempt to gain from them some supplies in such an urgent necessity. Charles now found himself obliged to depart from that delicacy which he had formerly maintained. By himself or his ministers, he entered into a particular detail, both of the alliances which he had formed, and of the military operations which he had projected. He told the Parliament that, by a promise of subsidies, he had engaged the King of Denmark to take part in the war, that this monarch intended to enter Germany by the north, and to rouse to arms those princes who impatiently longed for an opportunity of asserting the liberty of the empire, that Mansfeld had undertaken to penetrate with an English army into the Palatinate, and by that quarter to excite the members of the evangelical unions that the states must be supported in the unequal warfare which they maintained with Spain that no less a sum than seven hundred thousand pounds a year had been found by computation requisite for all these purposes, that the maintenance of the fleet and the defense of Ireland, 
demanded an annual expense of four hundred thousand pounds that he himself had already exhausted and anticipated in the public service his whole revenue had had scarcely left sufficient for the daily subsistence of himself and his family that on his accession to the crown he found a debt of above three hundred thousand pounds contracted by his father in support of the palatine and that while prince of wales he had himself contracted debts notwithstanding his great frugality to the amount of seventy thousand pounds which he had expended entirely on naval and military armaments after mentioning all these facts the king even condescended to use entreaties he said that this request was the first that he had ever made them that he was young and in the commencement of his reign and if he now met with kind and dutiful usage it would endear to him the use of parliaments and would forever preserve an entire harmony between him and his people to these reasons the commons remained inexorable notwithstanding that the king's measures on the supposition of a foreign war which they had constantly demanded were altogether unexceptionable they obstinately refused any further aid some members favorable to the court having insisted on an addition of two fifteenths to the former supply even this pittance was refused though it was known that a fleet and army were lying at portsmouth in great want of pay and provisions and that buckingham the admiral and the treasurer of the navy had advanced on their own credit near a hundred thousand pounds for the sea service besides all their other motives the house of commons had made a discovery which as they wanted but a pretence for their refusal inflamed them against the court and against the duke of buckingham when james deserted the spanish alliance and courted that of france he had promised to furnish lewis who was entirely destitute of naval force with one ship of war together with seven armed vessels hired from the merchants these the french court had pretended they would employ against the genoese who being firm and useful allies to the spanish monarchy were naturally regarded with an evil eye both by the king of france and of england when these vessels by charles's orders arrived at dieppe there arose a strong suspicion that they were to serve against rochelle the sailors were inflamed that race of men who are at present both careless and ignorant in all matters of religion were at that time only ignorant they drew up a remonstrance to pennington their commander and signing all their names in a circle lest he should discover the ringleaders they laid it under his prayer-book pennington declared that he would rather be hanged in england for disobedience than fight against his brother protestants in france the whole squadron sailed immediately to the downs there they received new orders from buckingham lord admiral to return to dieppe as the duke knew that authority alone would not suffice he employed much art and many subtleties to engage them to obedience and a rumor which was spread that peace had been concluded between the french king and the huguenots assisted him in his purpose when they arrived at dieppe they found that they had been deceived sir ferdinando gorgias who commanded one of the vessels broke through and returned to england all the officers and sailors of all the other ships notwithstanding great offers made them by the french immediately deserted one gunner alone preferred duty towards his king to the cause of religion and he 
was afterwards killed in charging a cannon before Rochelle. The care which historians have taken to record this frivolous event proves with what pleasure the news was received by the nation. The House of Commons, when informed of these transactions, showed the same attachment with the sailors for the Protestant religion, nor was their zeal much better guided by reason and sound policy. It was not considered that it was highly probable the king and the duke themselves had here been deceived by the artifices of France, nor had they any hostile intention against the Huguenots. That, were it otherwise, yet might their measures be justified by the most obvious and most received maxims of civil policy, that, if the force of Spain were really so exorbitant as the commons imagined, the French monarch was the only prince that could oppose its progress and preserve the balance of Europe, that his power was at present fettered by the Huguenots, who, being possessed of many privileges, and even of fortified towns, formed an empire within his empire, and kept him in perpetual jealousy and inquietude, that an insurrection had been at that time wantonly and voluntarily formed by their leaders, who, being disgusted in some court intrigue, took advantage of the never-failing pretense of religion in order to cover their rebellion, that the Dutch, influenced by these views, had ordered a squadron of twenty ships to join the French fleet employed against the inhabitants of Rochelle, that the Spanish monarch, sensible of the same consequences, secretly supported the Protestants in France, and that all princes had ever sacrificed to reasons of state the interests of their religion in foreign countries. All these obvious considerations had no influence. Great murmurs and discontents still prevailed in Parliament. The Huguenots, though they had no ground of complaint against the French court, were thought to be as much entitled to assistance from England as if they had taken arms in defense of their liberties and religion against the persecuting rage of the Catholics. And it plainly appears from this incident, as well as from many others, that of all European nations, the British were at that time, and till long after, the most under the influence of that religious spirit which tends rather to inflame bigotry than increase peace and mutual charity. On this occasion the commons renewed their eternal complaints against the growth of popery, which was ever the chief of their grievances and now their only one. They demanded a strict execution of the penal laws against the Catholics, and remonstrated against some late pardons granted to priests. They attacked Montague, one of the king's chaplains, on account of a moderate book which he had lately published, and which, to their great disgust, saved virtuous Catholics, as well as other Christians, from eternal torments. End of section 1, chapter 50, part 1. Recording by Theodulf, Chicago.